Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, May 18th, we discuss From Russia Without Love, U.S. Energy Policy, Environmental Goals, Foreign Wars, and the Administrative State. My name is Guy DeSantis, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Honorable Ryan Nelson, Judge, United States Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Judge Nelson, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, we have a broad and timely topic to cover over the next hour. Uh, energy policy has always been hotly debated, but Russia's recent and ongoing war in Ukraine has created a seismic shift in the geopolitical landscape. Virtually every country, including the United States, is reevaluating its energy policy, and we're doing it with a different calculus than just a few months ago. Certainly, policymakers are scrambling. Gas prices are the highest they've ever been. Every state's gas prices are currently above $4 per gallon for the first time ever. And on the international front, the world's reliance on fossil fuels has created a major problem. While we're sending billions of dollars to an aid to Ukraine to fight the war, Russia has doubled its revenue from oil sales since the war started. So as we increase our funding to Ukraine, Russia is also receiving increased funding as well. Dealing with the legal and policy questions that U.S. energy policy, environmental goals, and national security concerns raise, especially in a rapidly changing world, may be some of the most difficult questions we face today. My goal today is to lean upon the knowledge and expertise of our wonderful panelists to give us a better sense of our current state of affairs and let them tell us where they see us headed. With that, I'd like to introduce our speakers. Uh, first, we have uh, Tristan Abbey. He's the president at Comaris Analytics, LLC. He served for more than a decade in senior Republican policy roles related to energy and the environment in the United States Senate and the White House. Eric Grant is a partner at Hicks Thomas LLP in Sacramento, where he focuses on energy and environmental litigation. From 2017 to 21, he served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Environment and Natural Resources Division at the U.S. Department of Justice, a role I'm somewhat familiar with as well. In that role, he represented the government in the Juliana litigation, and he served as a law clerk to Chief Justice Warren Berger and Associate Justice Clarence Thomas and argued cases in the United States Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, and numerous other federal and state appellate courts. And Julia Olson is the founder, executive director, and chief legal counsel of Our Children's Trust, a nonprofit public interest law firm that provides strategic campaign-based legal services to youth from diverse backgrounds to secure their legal rights to a safe climate system. Julia is co-lead counsel in the Juliana litigation, and as a result of her human rights and environmental justice work, Julia has won numerous national and international awards, most recently the 2022 
Catherine and George Alexander Law Prize given by Santa Clara University. And she was named as one of Bloomberg's Green 30 for 2020. Uh, with that, we're going to start with uh, five to seven minutes for opening remarks from each of our panelists. And then we'll, uh, we'll allow uh, each panelist to then have uh, two to three minutes uh, to, uh, to respond after opening remarks. And we'll, we'll go ahead and start with uh, Mr. Abbey. Thank you, Judge. Uh, it's a it's an honor to speak uh, at this webinar, and I look forward to a, uh, a lively discussion. Uh, there is not much I can say about Russia and Ukraine and energy that you probably haven't already heard about on the news or read in the papers, uh, but maybe I can provide a, a different spin on what you've already heard uh, that may uh, fuel some 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 different lines of thinking and 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 in inquiry. I see basically four. Uh, major questions that emerge from this uh, war currently underway in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen the most uh, widely publicized uh, sanctions regime being imposed on a country by other countries in decades. It, uh, it really does uh, re remind us of the sanctions regimes that were put in place during the Cold War, East versus West, uh, on the embargoes that were put in place during the World Wars, uh, those are actually hot conflicts um, on Napoleon and uh, Britain uh, fighting each other on the high seas and, and besieging either the island or the continent of Europe. So I, I think that uh, this is a uh, historic moment in, in many respects. I think one huge question that emerges uh, from the sanctions regime that, that has been imposed is how is how durable is it for the future? In other words, uh, countries that we may want to impose sanctions on in the future uh, will be looking at this current uh, scenario and learning lessons from it uh, and and uh, probably trying to strengthen the resilience of their own economies against uh, similar type sanctions regimes in the future. It's a, a, a question of how, how do countries adapt to what they're seeing under uh, uh, unfold today uh, and uh, whether uh, these very powerful financial authorities that we have uh, will be as uh, as successful as uh, they, they have been either in this case or in the case of North Korea uh, or Iran and, and other uh, regimes that we've seen be imposed over the past couple of decades. Um, the second uh, big question that emerges for me uh, is uh, whether the shift that we've seen in in Europe vis-a-vis uh, -vis its own defense proves durable. Uh, we have seen uh, several Western European countries, and of course, those in the East and, and elsewhere in Europe, deploy forces. Um, this may be a more robust defense posture than we have seen out of Europe uh, uh, for quite some time, uh, perhaps uh, depending how you look at it, since Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan after 9-11. Um, this may not be so surprising, uh, considering that this is in some respects a defense of their own of their own territory, uh, depending on how you define uh, Europe. But it is, it is certainly far, far, far closer to home for them uh, than than Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, the Gulf of Aden and and other places where where they've been 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 called upon. Um, how durable is this uh, strengthened uh, defense posture? Uh, does it foretell um, portend uh, uh, greater defense spending over the next decade, or is this kind of a, 
a, a flash in the pan. Third question that emerges for me out of four. So uh, don't worry about ha having a long list here. Uh, is the durability of the shift that the judge referenced in respect to energy portfolios and the the uh, the mix of types of energy sources that countries are willing to use uh, to um, fuel their own economies? Uh, there has obviously been a lot of chatter about reviving nuclear energy in Europe. There's been chatter about buying more natural gas from the United States or Qatar or Australia. There has been chatter about uh, opening up production uh, uh, either either here or elsewhere. There's been chatter about diversifying away from Russia. I think the question is, does that chatter lead to concrete action? Um, it's a lot easier to say that you want to reduce your reliance on Russian energy down to zero percent than it is to actually actually do it. Um, this is also seen. Uh, We've we've also seen as a result of this uh, scenario something that I think policy wonks have always known, which is the limits of federal authority over U.S. energy markets. Uh, there is no single official in the U.S. government who's able to say we will import, uh, we will export more LNG to Europe tomorrow. There's just nobody who has the power to do that. And then uh, finally, the the fourth of four big questions that that emerged for me. Uh, is what effect this has on what some may call the reframe on China in U.S. policy circles. Over the past several years, four or five years, depending how you count, you've seen a, a number of uh, bills be enacted into law uh, related to the, to the um, uh, great power competition, as some re refer to it as, offering more authorities to the executive branch vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis financing, investments, uh, overseas deployment of capital, um, all in an effort to, in some sense, respond to to China's rise, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, and other related uh, uh, questions that uh, that uh, you can certainly read more about all over white papers and and uh, uh, essays published by almost any think tank you can possibly imagine. Uh, the the question is, does this reframe on China uh, from say, mostly trading partner, mostly potential ally or friend uh, to something more complicated, does that endure in spite of all the attention that has been put on this Russia-Ukraine situation? Um, uh, DC is not, a, is not a city that is good at doing more than one thing at, at the same time. Uh, and we will see what that means uh, for the future. So those are my, my four big questions. And I, I look forward to a uh, very lively discussion about any None or all of them. All right, thank you. Eric, do you wanna go ahead? Thank you, Judge Nelson, and thank you to the Federalist Society for inviting me. Uh, as Judge Nelson mentioned, I spent nearly four years in the leadership of the Environment Division of the Justice Department during the Trump administration. And in accord with the policy priorities of our client agencies, that leadership team sought through litigation to enhance the energy independence of the United States consistent with statutory mandates for clean air, clean water, and clean land. Thus, we defended pipelines, electric transmission lines, and other infrastructure permitted by our client agencies while also prosecuting polluters. Now, prior to 2022, energy independence and infrastructure seemed to some at least like partisan Republican slogans. 
But Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine and the awful realization that the United States and its European allies were helping to finance that invasion by buying oil and gas from Russia has perhaps made energy independence something of a bipartisan goal. And the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that became law in late 2021 was a Democratic brainchild opposed by Republicans, mostly because they judged that too little of the authorized funds would be spent on actual infrastructure. In addition to the rough consensus about energy independence and infrastructure, I observe a rough consensus on the desirability of moving to a low carbon economy. In popular conception, that move entails electric cars, solar power, and wind power. What do those things entail? Well, electric cars require lithium ion batteries that contain lithium, copper, and other minerals. Solar panels require copper and massive amounts of aluminum. Wind turbines likewise require copper and aluminum plus nickel. And all of these require a reliable electric transmission grid. You may have heard me repeat copper, which is ubiquitous in the high-tech, low-carbon future. Where will we get all of this copper and other minerals? Sometimes they can be obtained by unconventional methods from unconventional places. For example, evaporitic extraction of lithium from the brines below the vast salt flats of Chile. But mostly we will get these minerals by digging them out of the ground. In a word, we will mine them. Felicitously, Rosemont Copper Company sought approval from the U.S. Forest Service to dig a large open pit copper mine on federal land in Arizona, predicting that the mine would produce nearly six billion pounds of copper over 25 years. After favorably assessing Rosemont's proposal for a decade that overlapped all of the Obama administration, the Forest Service and other federal agencies granted the necessary approvals at the start of the Trump administration. At the end of the Trump administration, the Bureau of Land Management approved a proposal to mine lithium on 1,100 acres of federal land in Nevada, assertedly the largest lithium mine in the country. And so far, the Biden administration is vigorously defending that approval. That brings me to the cases. Plaintiffs challenged the Rosemont mine under NEPA, the ESA, the Clean Water Act, and the Mining Law of 1872. The district court vacated the project approvals under NEPA, the ESA, and the Mining Law. It did not even need to reach the Clean Water Act. The Ninth Circuit recently affirmed that decision under the Mining Law. It did not even need to reach the environmental statutes. In the Nevada myth lithium mine litigation, the challenging plaintiffs likewise rely on NEPA, among other federal statutes. Let me mention two more cases that concern energy independence and infrastructure. Under the Clean Water Act, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has issued Nationwide Permit 12 to authorize dredge and fill activities necessary for the construction and maintenance of utility lines, including oil and gas pipelines. In litigation challenging the Keystone Excel pipeline before it was canceled by President Biden, a district court vacated the entirety of Nationwide Permit 12 on the basis that it was issued without complying with the ESA. Only an extraordinary stay application to the U.S. Supreme Court forestalled massive interference with construction and maintenance of utility infrastructure throughout the country. Finally, the 1,200-mile-long Dakota Access Pipeline is safely operated for five years, now carrying 570,000 barrels of oil per day. 
yet in litigation challenging the Army Corps' grant shut down and drained. The D.C. Circuit vacated that injunction, but suggested that the district court could reissue it with a proper finding of irreparable harm, which fortunately could not be made. I litigated three of these four cases, but my purpose today is not to relitigate them. My purpose is to suggest that a roadblock stands in the way of energy independence, infrastructure, and a low carbon economy. And that roadblock is federal environmental law, principally NEPA with the ESA in a close second. But don't get me wrong, my solution is not to repeal these statutes nor is it to promulgate better implementing regulations. No, my solution is much more modest. Amend these statutes to bring them into the 21st century. NEPA was enacted in 1970, but it was last amended in relevant part in 1975. The ESA was enacted in 1973, but its major provisions have not been amended since at least 1988. And we're all familiar with the Clean Water Act enacted in 1972, but its key jurisdictional definition of navigable waters has never been amended. Now, doubtless your proposals to amend NEPA and the other statutes will differ from mine, and I don't propose here to tackle the myriad difficult issues, but I will hazard one modest proposal. Enough with the notion that every environmental impact statement must duplicate the latest IPCC report on global climate change. And EIS should inform decision makers and the public how many barrels of oil or cubic feet of natural gas will be extracted and stop trying to predict exactly how and when and where those volumes will be translated into so-called downstream emissions. The increasingly detailed predictions increasingly mandated by courts like the Ninth and DC circuits provide no useful information. As Judge Nelson pointed out in a recent dissent, NEPA is encouraging courts to address, quote, a global issue better left in the first instance to the political branches, not the judicial branch, unquote. My bottom line, if we want a 21st century energy independence, 21st century infrastructure, and a 21st century low carbon economy, we need a 21st century NEPA and a 21st century ESA. Thank you. Uh, and, and Julia? Good afternoon. Thank you, Judge Nelson, for your introduction. And thanks to Adam and everyone at the Federal Society for coordinating and inviting me to participate today. I appreciate it. Um, I'll start with a little bit of a different frame and, and go to the national security threats we face. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that we are watching is an extraordinary effort by a leader of a superpower to commit war crimes and have blatant disregard for the lasting scars that human rights violations um, to the people of Ukraine will have, especially its children and then the global um, the world itself. I think the growth of autocracy and threats to democracy that we're seeing are, are obviously rising globally. And Putin's war represents a complete lack of respect for both international law and sovereign soil. So this is a recognized threat to United States national security, undoubtedly. At the same time, and for decades preceding this war, we have also had another rising threat to national security, and that is worsening every day as well. The Department of Defense, 
our military intelligence and national security communities have been saying for at least two decades that climate change is one of the most significant threats to national security. Interestingly, what a lot of people don't know is that some of the earliest scientific research that led to the conclusive findings that burning fossil fuels is destabilizing the Earth's climate system and posing catastrophic threats was actually initiated by the US Navy after World War II. So a lot of this science comes from our military, comes from the fossil fuel industry itself, and it comes from um, eminent scientists in both in government and outside of government. And all of these experts, from military experts to scientific experts, uh, leading politicians, presidents, since at least the Lyndon B. Johnson administration have recognized that human-caused climate change was upon us and projected the security threats that we're seeing today. The uniqueness of this moment is now in the 21st century, we are at a precipice where we're poised to cross thresholds where we can't undo the harm that's been done, nor protect future generations from increasing harm. Um, I'll just refer to a couple of Department of Defense reports. The 2014 Defense Quadrennial Review said that the pressures caused by climate change, quote, are threat multipliers that will aggravate stressors abroad, such as poverty, environmental degradation, political instability, and social tensions conditions that can enable terrorist activity and other forms of violence. In 2019, under the Trump administration, the Department of Defense reported to Congress that the effects of a changing climate are a national security issue with potential impacts to Department of Defense missions, operational plans, and installations. And specifically in that report, the department said that because of climate-caused recurrent flooding, drought and wildfires, there was concern and threats to 79 installations, at least identified as of 2019. So military installations threatened by the climate crisis. So, you know, abundant support within the national security community to treat climate crisis as an urgent threat and to take action to address it. I come to this story um, from the perspective of representing young Americans who are already being harmed by the climate crisis here in the United States. And indeed, in addition to the overall threats to our nation and our national security that the crisis poses, it really specifically in terms of individual health and individual liberties, it's harming pregnant women and their fetuses, it's harming newborn babies, children whose brains and bodies are still developing are really the most vulnerable groups of people here in the United States. And I'll focus just on one aspect of that, and it's the increasing heat, the, the direct pollution from burning fossil fuels, but also the increasing uh, air pollution from the climate fire smoke that many people are now living with um, year round. And what that's causing is increased rates of miscarriages, low birth rates, heat stroke in our children, respiratory illnesses in our children, and then also leading to increase in autoimmune disorders and infectious diseases. So what I've noticed in the about 15 years I've been working in this space is that apart from the, the military and the national security intelligence communities, I think our medical communities and our pediatricians in particular are some of the most concerned members of society calling for this urgent transition. 
And my perspective on both of these national security threats, the war in Ukraine and climate crisis, is that it's not a binary choice. Um, there's a real opportunity right now to both support Europe with its urgent needs in this short-term situation. There's also an ongoing need um, domestically and for European countries domestically to really double down on transitioning to those clean energy systems and working through the types of issues um, that Eric and Tristan have raised to do so. So I don't buy into this notion that it's an either or choice. And in fact, um, one of the first things that energy experts in their plans that are already developed, we have the technology, we have the know-how to do this. What they say is electrifying transportation is the easiest lift. And uh, Eric identified some of the things we need to do to do that. What's interesting about this, and it goes to this point about having um, these, these 20th century laws impeding what we're doing today, you know, from your perspective, President Nixon called for electrifying transportation in the early 70s. And we have had the technology to do this for decades and decades, and it hasn't been done because our current laws and the, and the money in our system and our subsidies go to keeping fossil fuels in place. So my question is, what do we do right now in this moment and how do we rise up as a nation for the sake of, of young people and children who really depend on the right choices being made now to address, address both of these national security threats? And I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, why don't we take uh, two or three minutes and we'll start. Uh, Mr. Abby, you've heard everybody speak and, and maybe we can, maybe you could address, well, whatever uh, you were impressed with, with what, what, what you've heard, but uh, maybe Ms. Olson's uh, last question was, is a good place to start if, if you want well, to address that. I found both uh, uh, opening remarks absolutely impressive. Uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, that this is actually a, a great conversation to have right now. Uh, you know, uh, having worked at the National Security Council and uh, on Senate staff, I have uh, certainly heard about uh, the effects of a changing climate in terms of U.S. national security documents uh, all over the place, from uh, quadrennial defense review to uh, DOD budget proposals, uh, hearing testimony. Um, and I think it's it's always been a challenge for me to differentiate climate change as a national security issue, uh, the effects of climate change as a national security issue, uh, and the ability for any of the policies that we have proposed, uh, either in regulation or in law, to actually reverse those effects. Uh, often you, you will hear concerned uh, scientists and policymakers talk about how long-term the effects of, of greenhouse gases will be in the atmosphere, um, how they last for decades uh, and, uh, or, or, or even centuries, uh, depending who you talk to. Uh, and if, if that's the case, then it really does seem that nothing that we do right now will have much of an impact in the near future. Um, and if, that, if that's the case, then I think that forces us to answer a different set of questions. Uh, and it certainly changes our, our, our timelines on, uh, on how we uh, respond to things like Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, I would also like to commend Eric on his excellent exposition of copper um, and other uh, minerals that are absolutely critical to US uh, national economic security. 
and the fact that the United States mines uh, almost nothing for so many of them uh, and imports uh, half or more for a lot of them uh, and then imports uh, almost all of some from one particular country, um, that is uh, China. So I'm happy to continue the conversation, but I figured that would get the ball rolling. Sure. Uh, uh, Eric, do you want to take a few minutes? Sure. Uh, I'll probably sound like uh, Johnny OneNote, but my, my perspective representing the Forest Service for almost four years and talking to uh, foresters is that uh, the, the fires were not caused by climate change. The fires, in my opinion, were caused by NEPA. Uh, uh, one example, um, in the 1.6 million acre Santa Fe National Forest, uh, the Forest Service spent more than 10 years uh, trying to get approval to thin, not to clear cut, merely to thin and do some prescribed burning uh, of that small percentage of the forest to to prevent uh, these kinds of forest fires that in that case would have uh, destroyed the water supply of the city of Santa Fe. Um, with that, I'll yield the floor. All right, uh, Ms. Olson. Go in there, Eric. Uh, <laughs> I think what we need to bring into this conversation, if we're going you know, to talk about cause and effect and um, the role of the courts is when there are constitutional rights at issue. So individual American citizens are suffering injuries and there's evidence that shows a real causal chain between conduct of our government and the injuries to someone's health and well-being and safety and security in their home, those are questions that courts can review. And, and it's great to be able to set the record straight in this forum that we actually have never sought and don't expect one federal judge to take over the energy system or energy policy of the nation. That would be too much to ask of a single judge. Um, what we do ask the judges to do is step in and review the evidence, hear from the scientists, hear from the, the experts, and make findings of fact and declare what the Constitution requires or doesn't require. And when I was preparing for this, you know, one thing I did was go back and look at Youngstown, right? And Justice Jackson who dissented in Korematsu, wrote one of the most important concurrences in Youngstown, and wrote the majority, majority opinion in Barnett, says that even in, in, even in a time of war, even when the president had declared war against Korea, and even when Congress didn't support it, um, but we were actively engaged in war, which we are not currently, the courts could even step in and review whether it was appropriate for the president to basically demand, take over the steel companies, right? And demand that they use their companies um, for the benefit of the war. And, and that's done carefully and there are tests and there are standards that are put in place, but it is it is vital. I mean, I mean we can look at um, the COVID pandemic and how often courts were willing to step in on an issue of health, safety, national security, individual liberties, um, 
a global pandemic to step in and review whether and when individuals' fundamental rights under the Constitution were being infringed. And in fact, there's, as you know, there's a nationwide um, order taking over what we do with air travel on that issue. So I think the importance is it's vital that courts hear from judges, sorry, that courts hear from experts and really take a careful look at the facts and then apply bedrock constitutional law to those facts, particularly here where children are being harmed and where there are viable solutions to move away from fossil fuels. Thanks. Okay, well, um, let's um, let's uh, move into some uh, questions. I, I've got a, a couple of questions I can pose, and then it looks like uh, we, we've got some questions coming in already. Um, I guess one question, um, and I, I don't know who to direct it to. Maybe, uh, Julia, you could take a stab at this. Um, as, as Eric said, you know, Congress hasn't passed any new environmental laws for, for decades now. Do you believe that courts, given that status quo that doesn't seem to be moving, do you believe that courts should interpret environmental laws more liberally than they would other laws? Uh, and if so, uh, you know, what, what is the basis um, for, for that position? Um, you know, Judge Nelson, it might surprise you to hear this. I actually like sort of a textualist analysis of our statutory laws. Um, I think it's helpful to look at the language. Uh, I would then, if there's a lack of clarity, I do think sometimes uh, the history of that moment and the legislative history is important to look at um, as a whole, not piecemeal. So I don't think this is about interpreting environmental laws more liberally, less liberally. I think the laws we have need to be enforced. Um, they're on the books and until they're held to be unconstitutional or they're amended, they are what we have to work with. But I just want to push back on one thing. And it, this is not just an environmental law issue. This is also an energy law issue. There, We have abundant laws on the books that are also really dictating what energy policy in the country looks like and the inflexibility of that energy policy in some respects. And we have a lot of subsidies on the books that are still favoring fossil fuels. Um, so I agree, there's a need for Congress to act. Congress, as we all know, has been stalemated for a long time on these issues of energy transition um, and passing climate legislation. But there's active conduct happening right now that is really harming our kids. And I think courts have a, have a duty to step in. Um, maybe uh, given Congress's inaction, Mr. Abbey, you've got the the perhaps the you know the most historical perspective, and maybe you can help us out. Why why aren't they? If this is such a pressing matter, and and is uh, you know needs to be addressed not only for national security but health and welfare, why isn't Congress stepping in to uh, give some direction in, in these areas? It's a, it's a great question, Judge, and I, I think that the the the, the answer, uh, because it is a question about Congress, is is a uh, ultimately a, a, a politics based answer. Um, so if if you look at uh, many controversial topics that are facing the country right now, it's usually pretty easy to divide right and left, uh, at least in broad strokes. I think when it comes to and uh, the energy mix 
And I separate that from energy versus climate or the, the, the sort of bigger conversation, but the, the, the more focused question on, on what exactly types of energy uh, we use uh, in the country, I think you see a, a, uh, a very interesting regional breakdown uh, where it's not so much partisan, uh, but, uh, but more, more, uh, regional in terms of the kinds of energy that, uh, your state, for example, is best at producing. Um, and I think, uh, uh, it is no, no coincidence that the renewable fuel standard, uh, which in my opinion is one of the most atrocious, uh, policies ever put in place, uh, in terms of its, its complexity, uh, set aside whether it's a good idea or not, just in terms of the complexity of it. Uh, uh, it is a, a thoroughly impenetrable document uh, as an act and uh, incomprehensible as as policy. But it's also uh, heavily uh, geared towards uh, corn production uh, in a region of swing states. Uh, and I think that uh, in very similar respects, you see interesting regional breakdowns when it comes to things like hydropower, uh, where many environmental-minded uh, uh, folks are now uh, sort of opposed to hydropower. Uh, and uh, you see a lot of states where hydropower is a mainstay of baseload capacity, where you see Democrats in support of hydropower. Uh, conversely, uh, coal in terms of West Virginia in particular, uh, oil and gas production in, in in certain parts of the country where again you don't have these neat regional uh, these neat partisan br uh, breakdowns. I would say that that Congress has actually taken a lot of action uh, in uh, trying to support advanced technologies, in particular uh, advanced nuclear reactors. Um, this has been a bipartisan effort, uh, and. Uh, uh, we will see if it if, if it bears fruit, but it also has a lot of regulatory dimensions to it uh, that uh, make it a bit more more complicated to deploy. Even if we were to succeed uh, in terms of the technology, uh, and then uh, I hate to uh, beat a beat a dead horse, but we get back to that minerals question again. Uh, even if Congress was to, was to decide that all of a sudden all 100 senators and all 435 members of Congress were in favor of uh, energy transition uh, net zero by 2050, uh, unless you're gonna be mining more rocks out of the ground, uh, that is just not gonna be possible. Um, uh, Eric, you, you served in the uh, executive branch. And uh, so we, we heard a little bit about, you know, the legislative branch and what they are doing and what they could be doing, maybe what they should be doing. Um, where energy policy is so intertwined with, you know, military affairs, national security, some of these issues we've been discussing, isn't that an argument for greater authority in the executive and a branch and, and through agencies to act, to reflect uh, those policy initiatives rather than just Congress and the people? And if so, what, uh, what do you think executive agencies should be doing to address some of the uh, concerns that we're discussing today? Well, I'm not. I'm not so sure, Judge. Uh, I I encouraged uh, client agencies to exercise their regulatory authorities. Uh, the Waters of the United States rule under the Clean Water Act is is a preeminent example, and I uh, helped defend those rulemakings in court. But um, 
I guess my perspective, uh, looking back uh, over my tenure then and then seeing what's happened uh, in the new administration is that's that's not a durable model for uh, meaningful change. It's it, it really is uh, unfortunate and more than unfortunate that uh, what are we uh, 17 years coming up, 16 years after Rapanos versus United States, where the Supreme Court fractured uh, about the meaning of the term waters of the United States. And uh, as we used to joke in the Environment Division, if only there were a branch of government that was authorized to, to define that term with some particularity. Well, there is a branch. It's the Congress of the United States. And it's the first uh it's in Article One. It's supposed to be the the preeminent branch because it's closest to the people. So, uh, yes, uh, agencies should should do their best. I thought we uh, did a reasonably good job in the Trump administration in uh, uh, filling the vacuum. But unfortunately, there's a vacuum uh, that should be filled by Congress. Uh, Julie, where do you come out on these issues? Do you think that? Uh, uh, the legislative branch or the executive branch bears, you know, most of the responsibility on moving things forward. My view is that the executive branch and Congress have gotten us into the climate crisis and the third branch of government has been pretty silent and allowing the conduct to continue without judicial review and I, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution has been pretty absent from this conversation about protecting our air, our water, our land, our coastlines. And what's, you know, I've done a lot of research on history and, and looking at this through the lens of originalism. And when you look at what the founders intended and what they cared deeply about, a lot of it was about the land, the forests, the waterways. It was the natural resources of our nation that they built this country on. And they understood the importance even of the climate system. And I think we need to start looking at this issue through a constitutional rights lens again, looking at it in terms of um, our posterity and really protecting this nation for future generations, because there is a real crisis. And I, the thing I'm enjoying about this and appreciating is that I'm seeing areas of agreement, right? Like we're all saying talk is cheap, action is needed. We need to bring laws into the 21st century. I mean, we have, we're producing energy in a way that it's been produced for a hundred years, right? And interesting to your point about nuclear, I know from our experts that the Department of Energy stopped doing R&D on next generation nuclear technology in the 80s and 90s. They forewent it and they doubled down on hydrofracturing technology and the, and the research and development the industry needed to extract more gas. So there have been these trade-offs and choices. And at the end of the day, we have about six decades of the government knowing that fossil fuels would lead us to really catastrophic consequences if we kept burning them at accelerating rates. And now we're living that. And the question again is, what do we do? And I think this is a conversation that all three branches of government need to be having with one another, including through that constitutional lens that really does protect these fundamental rights to life and health and security that our children are threatened with. 
So I think it's all three. I don't think it's one or, or another. Um, let, let me just ask a follow-up question because you mentioned kind of an originalist view of this and the founders and I would agree with you. I uh, just read Undaunted Courage and was very impressed by, uh, you know, just a reminder of how much Thomas Jefferson was very uh, engaged on natural resources, even at a, um, in, the, in the founding of the country and how much uh, I guess I would agree with you that that was a big focus. But isn't that seem like a stretch to say that that just because they're interested in that, that it requires uh, the judicial branch to step in. And I'd be interested in where, uh, to the extent that you were kind of uh, going this way, where, where's the originalism basis for saying that the judicial branch should be the ones that are stepping in uh, to protect uh, the environment absent congressional or executive uh, action? Well, not absent congressional or executive action, right? So our, our work is not about bringing a failure to act cases. I don't think there's a mandatory duty written in the constitution for government to step in and address a climate crisis for which it has no role in perpetuating. But that's not what's happening. I mean, the his, our history, our nation's history shows that our energy system today is a direct result of a lot of government conduct, both by Congress and the executive. So where we have affirmative action, then what gives the court's authority to act is Article 3, because there's a case in controversy now between the children of the nation and the executive branch and the departments that are perpetuating these policies. Like we have a fossil fuel energy policy in our country that it dominates. And our system, our electricity systems, our pipeline systems, all of the plants that are authorized in this country, they all operate under federal approval. And many of them operate under federal subsidy. And, and so the authority is Article 3, but it's really right to life and liberty um, and interpreted through the posterity clause because life and liberty wasn't just for one generation, right? It's not just for, for our generation, it's for generations to come. And um, I, I think, I would hope that there's some synergy and connection between what we're doing on behalf of youth and, you know, Judge Nelson, your perspective and the perspective of folks in the Federalist Society about what's really important and what we're trying to do for, for the benefit of present and future generations who will inherit this nation. And it does go back to what the founders intended. And Jefferson was an amazing um, climate. He had a climate journal. He, they tracked everything because it was it was the essence of life was our climate system. And all of human civilization has been built upon that. Um, well, let, let's turn a little bit to some of the questions that, are, uh, that, that have been posed. Um, uh, we, we've Christopher Aquilina seems to be engaged on this. We appreciate uh, uh, you weighing in with questions. And I, I think I'll take the first question and just boil it down of kind of this idea that a lot needs to be done here. Uh, wouldn't it make sense to cut the red tape ultimately is what he gets to and allow us to utilize our resources instead of saying that we're protecting the environment, but are actually selling out our own uh, national security? Um, I, that, that could go to any of you. I mean, Julia, maybe you could take that in the first instance, and then maybe we can get some other perspectives as well. Yeah, look, before I started our Children's Trust and began working on behalf of youth, 
I did environmental law and I worked under all the statutes that Eric and Tristan have complained about, right? So I brought those cases and there, there is a tremendous amount of red tape. There is inefficiency, there is bureaucracy, um, not just in the agency process, the litigation processes that follow that up. Um, I had cases where we would win three times in a row and then the agency would cross a T and dot an I and a project that was really damaging would go forward. So I think that there is a lot of inefficiency in the system and it would be great if Congress would clean up some of these inefficiencies and update these laws to reflect the current state of the environment, the current state of our climate um, and really bring them more into the 21st century. That said, you know, the Clean Air Act is an example. Its purpose was to protect air quality and, and the quality of the atmosphere. And through the Clean Air Act, there's been a lot of air pollution that's been permitted and authorized that has gotten us to where we are today. So I think there's a lot of failure of environmental statutory law with some successes. And I grant you, Eric and Tristan, there is a lot of inefficiency for industries um, who are burdened by this in ways that hopefully can be addressed going forward. Uh, Eric, do you want to take, uh, you, you've already referenced some issues on the red tape and, and kind of some of the problems that have come into that. Where's the fine line? How do you protect the environment, uh, but also get access in a reasonable way to the, the resources that, that we need to, um, you know, solve some of the problems that are facing us? Let's go back to the example of so-called downstream emissions. I, I don't think we're protecting the environment. I, I, I don't know what we're doing. Um, we had to advise our client agencies, uh, update our advice with every new D.C. Circuit opinion. Uh, I referenced your dissent, Your Honor, in a case called 350 Montana. Uh, now there's more guidance from the Ninth Circuit in that case, in a case called Bone Liberty. Uh, Congress, Congress should write into the statute what agencies need to do with respect to uh, emissions that will be caused by, uh, for instance, extraction of oil and gas in Montana. Uh, there's a lease. There's going to be uh, certain numbers of barrels and cubic feet extracted. What, what, what do the agencies need to, to reveal to the public and the decision makers about that? They don't know. Uh, they should know, and then they should do it. And, and the public and decision makers will have that information and be able to make intelligent decisions. So I don't think we're trading off between protecting the environment and some kind of efficiency, we're just doing make work. Um, one of the other uh, questions that came up was, uh, I guess, ch uh, child uh, standing for children in the courts. And Julia, you've, you've talked about this, uh, you know, throughout your comments. And, um, you know, obviously there's there's taxpayer standing. This is the question is how it's posed is we're taxpayer standing. There's generally not standing for a taxpayer to come in and challenge, uh, get into court and get standing with a case or controversy. So wouldn't how do you distinguish children and say, well, children should have more standing to come in or their concerns 
uh, should be put at more paramount than than just a normal taxpayer standing, such that uh, they should have access to the courts on some of these issues. Yeah, well, just to be clear, these cases aren't taxpayer cases. Um, so I understand this is getting at the generalized grievance doctrine, which is not the case here. Um, and it's one thing that the Ninth Circuit did establish in the Juliana case is these young people had individual particular particularized concrete harms. Um, I mean, if, if you can't breathe, you are you have an injury sufficient for Article three standing to come into court. Um, as long as you can make the causal chain to the conduct of the defendants. And so we're not in that taxpayer class, but but notably, these children aren't taxpayers. <laughs> you know, these children are the least politically power, powerless, and they have the least political power in the country because they're not, many of them aren't of voting age. And so not only do they not have economic power, they don't have political power, they're the least represented in our government. And the one branch they do have access to where they have a right to be heard is their judiciary. Um, one uh, one question, and I don't want to point them all at Julia, maybe Tristan, you could weigh in on this and, and you sort of already have, but one question that was asked was, does it really matter at the end of the day what the United States does given that we're just, you know, one part of a global uh, a group of sovereign nations that are addressing this. And if if China and India and some of the big and Russia, some of the bigger countries aren't going to take um, environmental control seriously, uh, you know, why why should the United States get into hamstringing ourselves when it, it might not actually have any impact? Tristan, do you want to take a stab at that one first? Sure. I, I think that uh, the answer to that uh, is that in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and all of the scientific modeling and uh, analysis that, that, that has gone into the IPCC and, and other reports and documents, uh, it is true that, that, that if uh, major emitters uh, don't reduce their emissions, then according to the models, you will continue to see uh, all the effects of GHGs uh, on the climate. Uh, regardless of what the U.S. does or what, what what Europe does, I would caution though that there are other reasons for uh, following environmental laws and, and regulations than just climate change, uh, and that uh, uh, it, it is important uh, for the U.S. to have clean air and clean water, as as uh, every president has said since since Nixon, but most uh, poignantly Donald Trump, uh, and uh, it is uh, uh, I think. Uh, it is one of our competitive edges uh, that U.S. energy is so relatively clean compared to other countries' uh, energy uh, in terms of, of U.S. exports in the future. Julia, one one question. You, you, uh, you had taken some criticism even from environmental groups that were very concerned that the Juliana case may not be the best vehicle to vindicate some of these rights. Uh, you've gone up to the Ninth Circuit now. The Ninth Circuit held there was no standing. Uh, in what ways do you think that the Juliana case has impacted uh, future ability for those who want to challenge climate impacts uh, to bring those cases in federal court? Um, you know, first of all, just 
so the the listeners understand the status of the case. We um, we're back on remand. We filed a motion for leave to amend. We're waiting for a decision from the district court on whether our amended complaint can go forward, focusing on declaratory judgment. So I don't think the story of Juliana is done. The next chapter is still going to be written. And in in terms of the impact, um, I would say domestically, it has changed the way we look at standing. It's changed the way we look at how children are being affected. This isn't just an environmental issue. This is a human issue. And I think globally, there's, you know, there are cases now on behalf of youth and children in over 25 countries. And we're, st- we're seeing courts around the world allow youth into court, grant them standing, hearing their cases. Many are having rulings in their favor. And so, you know, the law is percolating on this issue. And, and the novel aspect of it is that we haven't had these kinds of constitutional claims around climate, around environmental issues before, because we haven't had this kind of threat that we see today. So I think the law is is moving and evolving. And I think the Juliana case is still going to continue to move forward, hopefully to a trial, because the evidence in these cases is so vital. It's where the disagreement Eric and I are having over whether these wildfires out west that I live and breathe every summer now are made worse by climate change, caused by climate change, or whether they have nothing to do with climate change. Like that's an issue for experts. And a competent judge can hear from both sides and make a finding of fact as to that issue. So it's why trial is essential before the Ninth Circuit or the Supreme Court or any appellate court really hears these cases. Um, they're worthy of being heard under the Constitution. They're no less worthy than you know someone going into court because they feel like their life is infringed, their liberty is infringed by having to wear a mask on an airplane. And these kids can't breathe. And so they have a claim and, an op- and they should have an opportunity to be heard. Okay. Well, thanks. I think we're almost out of time. I'm going to ask one last question and give it to Eric. Congress, finally, they, 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 I'm going to give you a hypothetical. They get caught up and they're like, we got to fix NEPA. We don't know what to do. We're going to turn to Eric. Whatever Eric says, he's got one thing and we're going to put it into law. What would that one thing be, Eric, that could help fix? Uh, let, let's just focus on NEPA to make it more useful and practical. Uh, today, well, Judge, you put me on the spot. I, I I'll go back to what I said before uh, in in terms of uh, climate change and emissions. Uh, we ought to have a specification of what an environmental impact statement needs with respect to downstream emissions, and uh, something that can be calculated with. Uh, reasonable dispatch uh, to provide useful information to decision makers. These these reports now run to hundreds, even thousands of pages, and uh, to my mind, uh, don't provide the kind of information that uh, the decision makers or public uh, finds useful. So Congress Congress should really specify what what goes in reports. And uh, then agencies will be able to do that, know that they've complied with the law and and let the chips fall where they may. Well, thank you. Thank you all uh, for a, a, a very uh, thoughtful and uh, helpful discussion on, on important issues. And uh, uh, we're, we're grateful for the questions that came in. And uh, 
with that, I think uh, we'll, we'll conclude this, this webinar. Thank you all. Thank On you. behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.